In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. St. John. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday we spoke about uh, spiritual warfare, and today we're going to be talking about it still, because the ultimate spiritual warfare is at the cross, and at the cross he shows us the sense of it, the direction of it, shows us where we're going, and pretty much every detail of it you will find present there. And so we'll head right into the Sacred Heart, and the Sacred Heart is at, obviously, the heart of the cross, and without being redundant by saying heart too many times, um, the Sacred Heart is the core of our faith. It is the birth of the church. It is the moment that the blood and water flowed. The Sacred Heart has been an immense, more than a devotion, it's been an immense part of our faith from the beginning. The fathers of the church spoke quite lengthily about it. If I can remember the title of the book, there's a, a good book that was just a compilation of what all the fathers of the church have said and what all the saints have said down through the centuries, which would be a good read for everyone, um, very meditative. But the Sacred Heart, it is absolutely essential to enter into. Now, if we're going to enter into this mystery, there's a lot of things that would be good to cover because it is the center of our faith. So let's quickly read chapter 19 of the Gospel of St. John. We won't read the whole thing, just read the part about the wound. So verse 28 and following. After Jesus, after this Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Already those words are pretty important. Jesus, Welcome. Um, already those words are pretty important. We're going to be talking about the Sacred Heart. We have this aspect comes at the moment when he says, all is finished. Everything is accomplished. And we're going to find that everything is accomplished in these two things. When he cries out, I thirst, and his heart is wounded. Everything is accomplished. He says to fulfill scriptures. And it's to fulfill all of scriptures.
which means that it's to fulfill the divine economy, which isn't economics like we normally think, which when we say it's to fulfill scriptures, we mean to, to accomplish the divine economy or the divine plan of God, the divine government. God's plan from all time is fulfilled in this moment of, this, of the cross. So in order to do that, he cries out, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of vinegar on his hop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had finished the vinegar, he said, it is finished. So he drinks the wine or the vinegar. Remember, vinegar is just wine gone bad. And the vinegar is near the cross because the soldiers were drinking it. It wasn't near the cross because they were dipping herbs in it. Okay. They were actually drinking it. it was how, the soldiers were all drunk off of that vinegar. So... He drinks the wine, accomplishing the Passover. And he says, it is finished. And that's already a very mysterious, very, uh, we can sense it's very important, but we need to unpack that. Why is that so important? Why is it all accomplished at this moment? It's important to walk through Scripture and start to unpack these things. He, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was not caused to die, according to St. John. He chose to die. So how does it go? He bows his head and gave up his spirit. Meaning, he purposely didn't. He purposely dies. He allows himself to die. Being God, he could not die. Not like that. God had to say, yes, now I will relinquish my spirit. Since it was preparation, the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross and Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. You'll see at the end of this paragraph, it'll say, it was to fulfill scriptures that no bone of his shall be broken, which is a direct reference to the Passover lamb. Remember the Passover lamb, as you should be very familiar with, I hope. Otherwise, we can go over that. Uh, the Passover lamb itself has to have no broken bones. It can't be a reject. It can't be a reject. We give the bad ones to God. No. When I was in uh, Steubenville, and I was with a group of uh, other young men discerning, we'd say that God gets the best, the women get the rest. <laughs> da, da, da. No, not sure. It goes both ways. <laughs> it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Um, 
but nevertheless, here it is true, here it is true, that God only gets the perfect lamb. He only gets the perfect lamb, the perfect lamb of sacrifice. So here's a direct reference, and there are many of them in this, in this chapter, but it's a direct reference to the lamb. No bone is broken. He is the lamb, and that would be the Passover lamb. Remember, the whole aspect about Passover is touching again on divine economy. The divine economy meaning God's plan for all of eternity, from all of eternity. The Passover is when the angel of death passes over. And it does not come and reap our souls. Here, with the blood of the Lamb, and also eating of the Lamb, the angel of death will pass over. He accomplishes the the new Passover. And there's all kinds of Eucharistic themes coming in, which perhaps in the second hour we'll come back to. But in this first hour, I want to show the larger divine economy and how it fits in with God's eternal plan. And so, let's go forward. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. It's a random act. It seems to be an act done in the midst of chaos. And it does, it does, it's an act done in the midst of chaos in order to get a job done. It's brutal and efficient. It's the sensing that, well, his legs are already broken, so let's just make sure. St. Catherine of Siena is going to speak about, like, why did they have to do this to a body? Why did they have to do this already to someone whom they knew to be dead? And so it happens in the midst of chaos. That's an important aspect, that in the midst of the chaos, they go and they almost randomly, because the normal procedure was to break the leg, But once dead, there was no procedure. So instead, they take the spear and they pierce the side. And it's a brutal efficiency. And so this piercing of the Sacred Heart is going to happen in a moment of chaos. And it is the brutal efficiency of evil. It's not needed. It's not needed. And nevertheless, it is demanded. Nevertheless, it is demanded of the soldier to do that. The soldier is told he must. And so the soldier does. We know through stories that this had led to his conversion. 
But nevertheless, at that moment, flows blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. He te- his testimony is true. And it's interesting. He stops right after that, and he says, he who saw this is bearing witness. It's the first time he says that. And he thereby is putting a special emphasis upon this. He is marking it and seeing that it's quite significant. And let's move forward. His testimony is true, and he knows he tells the truth that you may also believe. And so he's giving testimony specifically to this. He's stopping at it. And it's in complementarity with this cry of thirst and the drinking of the, of the wine or the vinegar. He's stopping at it, and he's saying, I am saying this in order that you might believe. It's the first time he's going to say that. And so he's putting a special emphasis that it is to this that we adhere in the mystery of faith. This is where our act of faith adheres. Notice he doesn't stop anywhere else to do that. And so it's interesting to stop and look at this. The author of this, the author of gospel, of the gospel, the author of the gospel is saying that. Um, who is Saint John? Yeah. The one he's going to say the he has borne witness. He's the one who saw it, is bearing witness to this. And he'll stop. It's like a third degree kind of thing. Now he steps out and he says, I, the author, am bearing witness to this so that you might believe. And that he doesn't do. Jesus in the actual Gospels says many things about faith. But this is the author stepping out for the first time, stating that this is an important point to which we must believe. Which ties in very strongly with that First statement, that everything is accomplished, or that this is the fulfillment of Scripture. And when we're looking at it, there is a direct bond between the I thirst, meant by St. John, and the Sacred Heart. Remember, the I thirst, he says, I thirst, and he drinks the wine. And then out of his heart, flows the blood and water. And it's something that is very, very good, very good to meditate upon. Because remember that he's receiving that wine, which in the Old Testament is both joy and suffering. Many of the passages on wine will talk about how the wine is a symbol of God's wrath. You know? We tread on the grapes. We tread on the grapes. We walk on the grapes, squishing the blood out of them. It'll speak a lot about God's wrath coming down. And the blood of the grapes is a sign of God's wrath. And here, 
Jesus is drinking God's wrath for sure. <laughs> That's why he says, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. <laughs> you know? That's absolutely clear in, in the scriptures. He's drinking God's wrath. And when he drinks it, well, actually, even before, he, he had just suffered so much. He's crucified. Even when he's crucified, he gave unto the end, because he had one consolation, which is his mother, and even that he gave away. So there's one consolation he gives away. And it would be hard for Mary to now, at this one most sacred moment, turn away and, and look at another. And yet he asks that of her. And after he says that, he says it is accomplished. And so he says, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And it's interesting. He says, I thirst for what? To take on the wrath of God even more. To take on the wrath of God even more. To show another way of saying the same thing that is in some ways less mysterious and more beautiful, therefore, I don't know if that goes coherently, but yeah, less mysterious is to say, I love so much that even all this offering is not enough to show the intensity of my love. And so I thirst to offer more. Hence he says, I thirst to drink the wine of your wrath to offer my life even more. And it's very, very beautiful because it shows the immensity of his heart that even after going all the way to the end of his capacity in his humanity to show his love, he says it's not enough. And so he drinks the wine, and after that was the words, he receives the wrath of God, and he dies in offering up his spirit, and then his heart is pierced. And out of his heart, it's like his human heart, it is not capable of holding the intensity of the love. It's a nice symbolic way of saying the same thing. It's a nice symbolic way is to say his human heart couldn't hold it. And it's, you know, you see that in some of the saints. You see that in Philip Neri, right? When his heart grew, popped. You heard of that story? How he was in church and um, he fell down and uh, they heard a huge pop and... Uh, from that day forward, he had a bulge, and his heart would beat, and everyone in the church could hear his heart beating. And after he died, they did an autopsy, and his heart had grown twice the size, kind of thing. Now, that um, is symbolic, right? That's symbolic. Jesus didn't have that. <laughs> uh, uh, but nevertheless, the heart being pierced is literally him saying that, I now pour out this love upon humanity. I pour out that love which I gave to the Father when I cried out, I thirst. Father, I love you so much that this is not enough. Uh, so I will drink that cup of wrath, that, that cup which you had prepared for me. I thirst. And once it is accomplished, he bows his head, breathes his last, and from his humanity pours grace for his grace upon all humanity. Notice 
That's a key term. From his humanity pours grace upon all humanity. There's a link, humanity and humanity. It's because he did it in his human heart that it comes into our heart. Because there's a link between his humanity and ours. That's very cool. Now these things are things that I would like to come back on. Um, if during your break you can go back over this, but the next things I'm going to bring up will explore different aspects of what I said. So it's probably good if I just keep on going. Um, and you, you can take notes. It's good to take notes in these things because it's rather dense. Rather dense. Each point is easy to follow, but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I figure it's all, always better to sip on a fire hydrant than to just get a little, a little bit of water once in a while. So... Good. Um, so there's also, I mean, I would love to go into that whole last part of, uh, I talked about the broken bones, but then they shall look upon the one they have pierced. That's another beautiful verse to explore and to enter into. Behold the pierced one. Car Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, um, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote a book called Behold the Pierced One. And the second half of it really explores this. Um, the first half is like a compilation of essays, really. So very good. Um, now, I wanted to, in order to expound upon this, I wanted to touch on something I alluded to yesterday, which is Revelations chapter 5. It's a very important passage. Um, and since we're all Catholic, we brought our Bibles. And... Um, we can open up our Bibles to Revelations 5, and if not, you could just imagine. That's no problem. Revelations 5 is one of the chapters in the book of Revelations that you should memorize. The book of Revelations is maybe not memorized like the other one. Not like I said yesterday. You don't need to memorize it, but you need to understand it in depth and study it and, and go into that chapter. That's not one that you have to memorize. I take that back. That's one that you have to know the theology of and have it all in your head because that's an important chapter, Revelations 5. 4 also, very important. 12 also is very important. Um, very good. Now, um, chapter 5, by the way, 12, just on an anecdote, 12 is the chapter in the Bible that talks about spiritual warfare. It's where St. Michael throws the devil and his angels down into the earth, kicks them out of, kicks them out of heaven. Now, um, chapter 5 tells us volumes about the Sacred Heart. In chapter 5, you find the Book of Life. Let's start to read. Now, in chapter 4, you have the throne opening up. You have uh, he, the first real vision into heaven. Remember that in the book of Revelations, there's vision, vision, vision. And you start to wonder what is the order between them and all that, and how are they all interconnected, and you might get lost in the forest. But right now, we're in one of the major ones. And after you've studied these for a little while, you start to get the hang of it, and you start to be able to put them all together. 
But now we're standing before the throne, and the throne is the throne of judgment, which talks, talks a lot about government, right? Because the king governs from his throne. Okay? Very simply, he governs from his throne. And one of the acts of government of God is who he's going to let into heaven. So you have St. Peter sitting at the gate with his book and goes, hmm, are you in there? <laughs> um, this is one of those texts where we get that from, although St. Peter has nothing to do with this. But the book of life is part of the book of Revelations. And on that, on that scroll, rather than a book, uh, your name hopefully is written. Right? Hopefully so. So let's start out. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Okay. So it's a scroll written all over it. And But the problem, big problem, it's sealed. And if you can't open it, you're not going to heaven. So, How are we going to open it? How are we going to open it? Well, there's seven of those seals. How are you going to break them? And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Okay. So, let's go through this. <coughs> we are now talking about um, Revelations 5. And in here, we're immediately in God's providence or his divine, we'll call it the divine providence. And when I use that term, I'm using it so that for those that aren't familiar with it, um, so that you might be familiar with it. Um, and it means essentially God's government, um, his, I, yeah, his way of providing for us. You could think of it that way, if that helps. Um, his government throughout all of history. So that includes creation all the way to end. Everything going on. Okay. We're dealing with God's divine providence here, or government. Okay. And we're dealing with the book of life, or final judgment. But it's sealed. We can't enter into it. So no one will be saved. For no one is worthy to break the seals. No one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I wept much that no one is found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. That's a nice passage because John actually is crying. And that's one of the few times in the Gospels you find tears, you know. Uh, John is actually weeping because no one can open it. So our hope is not that they remain closed, but that they remain open. When they start opening them, freaky stuff comes out. <laughs> uh, and usually in the book of Revelations, we see those freaky things coming out. We're like, Ugh! you know, but actually those freaky things are a good sign in the book of Revelations, because that means the seals are opening. We want those seals to be open, okay? 
We don't want those seals to remain closed. But in order to make it into salvation, we're going to have to go through the cross like Jesus did. So the book of Revelations is the church going through its crucifixion and resurrection. The church has to be crucified and resurrected like Christ. So here, this is also going to be about how we participate in the sacred heart. How we partake in the lamb, to put it that way. So again, final judgment is sealed. It's saying we participate. It talks to us about this. Now, let's go a little bit further. Um, I wept much. There we go. Verse 5. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and his seven seals. I mentioned this yesterday. Very important. He, his words are key. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's the one that was promised, therefore, at the end of Genesis. When Jacob speaks to his 12 sons and he's blessing them, he gives a special blessing to the lion of the tribe of Judah, to, to his son Judah. And so it's calling out for us the providence that began with Abraham that began with Isaac, that began with Jacob, and speaking to us about how this is the fulfillment of all things. That one, the chosen one, the Messiah, he is the one. The Messiah is the one that will do it. The root of David. But then what is this lion and then what is this root? And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb. Okay, so lamb. Lamb has two things to it. It evokes priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, and the Holocaust. So both the priest and the thing offered by the priest. He is that sacrificial offering, to put it that way. When you think of lamb, you think of the sacrificial offering. The sacred heart evokes the sacrifice, the sacrificial offering, the Holocaust. What is a priest? A priest is one who stands between God and man as mediator, offering up to God in reparation for humanity, and then offering God's grace to humanity. So he's the one that offers. So what is he offering? The lamb. And in this case, Jesus is both. He is the lamb offering himself. I saw a lamb standing as though it were slain with seven horns and seven eyes. That's really beautiful because he is power and intelligence and a perfect harmony between them, the horn and the eyes, which are the seven spirits of God 
sent out into all the earth. And there we go with uh, Holy Spirit who always comes in the seven uh, gifts, in the seven <coughs> gifts. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. It was very beautiful. Because we're going to enter now into the great victory. Because he's going to come forth as the white horse. He's going to come forth as the one who will be victorious. He is the lion. The lion is the whole aspect of victory. It's the whole aspect of battle, too, whether you speak about lion. Lion would be victory, battle, king. Note, so how is he victorious? Where is he going to be victorious? He's victorious because he's the lamb. Jesus wins his spiritual battle by the offering of himself in love. All spiritual battles are won by the offering of ourselves entirely in love to God. And the devil's work is to distract you from that. The devil's work is to distract you from entering into the sacred heart and offering your life to the Father. That's his work. That's what he tries to do. Very good. Now, that's nice because here we're going to also speak about... When we're speaking about the, this scroll, uh, um, the scroll is that when, the sacred, when Jesus offers himself at the cross, he's talking about predestination. And God's providence, too. Because remember, your name is written on there even before you were born. We do, as Catholics, believe in predestination. It's just if you look in the catechism, what do we mean by predestination? That's a whole other thing than what you think we mean. We mean that God intends that all go to heaven by predestination. And then he knows who actually makes it, too. He doesn't cause you to go to hell. You cause yourself to go to hell. But he intends that you go to heaven. He predestines all people and he knows if you make it. So that's why we have the scroll. The scroll is the scroll of predestination in God's government. And that's why you find in, for example, John 17, I do not pray for all, I pray for those you have given me, those that are in the scroll. I pray for those in the scroll. Or, in the Eucharist, in the consecration, um, uh, the blood is offered for not all, but for many. You remember that when we changed it back to what Scripture says? It's not offered for all, it's offered for the many, the many that are predestined. 
Now, that's an important thing to think about. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want all to receive. And he's not asking that all receive. He's asking that all receive. He's asking that all convert. That's for sure. But then what happens if you don't? And then he'll say, well, let's not throw the pearls to swine. In that case, we're not going to force the devil to be into heaven if he does not want to. We will not force him to go into heaven. That's a very interesting. So you see, this sacred heart, it's right at the very center of everything. It is the core of our faith. It's where Jesus saves us by offering himself to the Father and at the same time opening up the scroll, meaning opening up the grace to all humanity. And from his heart is going to flow rivers of living water. From his heart flows rivers of living water. There's a nice passage just to give something a little lighter. Um, Judges 14. Hopefully some of you might be familiar with it. Some of you might be like, whoa, this is a weird story. But it's nice. It's light. It's all about Samson. Samson and the lion. (laughs) So Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. It's chapter 14, verse... Judges chapter 14, verse 5 and following. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and he came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion asunder, as one tears a kid. I don't know, I've never torn a kid, but all right. And he had nothing in his hand. So he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she pleased Samson well. And after a while, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold... There was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out onto his hand and went along eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and he gave some to them and they ate the honey. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of a lion. And his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And when the people saw him, they brought thirsty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find, out, find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty festal garments. 
But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty festal garments. And they said to him, Put your riddle that, I'm, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And they could not in three days tell what the riddle was. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. (laughs) Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Pretty straightforward, at least. Definitely not passive-aggressive. Just straight-up aggressive. And Samson's wife wept before him and said, you, o- you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my countrymen, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father and my, nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to the countrymen, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Then he said to them, If you had not plowed my heifer, <laughs> you, would, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the festal garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had, who had, best, who had been his best man. So it's a cool story. <laughs> I like that one a lot. I like that one a lot. Uh, um, <laughs> it's quite a life. Um, yeah, over the years, I actually do prefer aggression over passive aggression. <laughs> it's true. I can't deal with my <laughs> slow drain. But nevertheless, um, here it's a beautiful story. And um, it's all about this lion that he kills. And after he kills this lion, he goes and finds in its heart or in its carcass right there honey. And he's going along and eating that honey. And there's something that is is very beautiful and a prefiguration of the sacred heart, a prefiguration of what we were just reading. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's from the Lion of the tribe of Judah that uh, we take on that sacred honey, that grace that we are to receive. And that is a beautiful thing that all the fathers of the church kind of recognize. And throughout history, there's been many a tie done in between the Sacred Heart and this passage. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the lion of the tribe of Judah came something to eat. Very also Eucharistic. Very also, again I repeat, Eucharistic. Out of the strong, who is God, came something sweet. That's very nice. Out of the strong, the lion, came something sweet. 
And I thought that would be a nice little anecdote. So there are f quite a few things still that great thing now that if we were to take a pause in our minds and hearts and to pick up again one of the great things to see is this sacred heart and the heart of the Trinity and it's very beautiful because the sacred heart is God's gift to us it's the honey So that we might enter into the eternal union with him. And that's the predestination, the scroll, you know. He is our, our honey. The whole aspect about the Eucharist entering in the sacred heart is very beautiful. But, you know, that famous story of the of St. Augustine as he's walking down the street, not down the street, sorry, down the beach. <coughs> it's nice to stop on. Um, St. Augustine, who, that famous story, which hopefully you've all heard, he's walking down the beach and he sees that boy that is going in the ocean with a bucket and he takes the bucket and he fills the hole and he goes back in the ocean and he takes a bucket again and he fills the hole with water. And he keeps on doing it as St. Augustine is approaching. And then St. Augustine, the whole time he's working on the treatise of the Trinity, which is one of the most famous treatises that uh, have ever been done in theology and very important milestone in the history of Christianity. And he makes it to the boy and, and he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to put the ocean in the hole. And St. Augustine says, you can't do that. It won't work. The ocean's too big. And St. Augustine, uh, no, and the boy says to him, nor can you put the Trinity in your own head and disappears. Now, when we speak of great mysteries, it's a good analogy that it was presented there because mystery does not mean not understandable. And that's good to write. This is good to meditate upon. Mystery is falsely defined as not known or not understood. Okay? When we think of mystery, we think of murder mystery, and that means that I just don't know who did it, so i got to figure it out. And once I know who did it, it's not a mystery anymore. Right? That's the way we think of mystery. The mystery, when we speak about it, is not, it's not that at all. In fact, you can know a lot about it. But the more you go, the deeper it gets. And in reality, a mystery is like an ocean that you can swim in and drink all of your life and never get to the depth or the width. A mystery is always that famous line when you say, it's an ocean that can drown an elephant and a tide pool for a little kid to play in. The mysteries are always both. 
always both. Mystery, we call it a mystery because it's like my mind can penetrate into it and swim deeply, but my mind cannot encompass it. I cannot contain it in my own head. It's very different. And much of our life, therefore, is a call, actually all of our life is a call, to swim in the great mysteries of God, which we call contemplating, to gaze, to look upon the great beauty and mysteries of God. So, when we're approaching this great mystery of the Trinity, it's really actually quite, quite, quite beautiful. And that is the, the, both the inner life of God, you know, which is the Trinity, and then his outer life when he proceeds out to create others. And it's as if for all eternity, God is not static like a rock, you know. He's not static. God is not a static being. He is an act, as Aristotle would say. Meaning, he is dynamic, so if we're going to say not static, but dynamic. He is one that is constantly loving to the full, all the way. Constantly contemplating. When we think of truth, we think of, I know it all. And that's static. Once you got your doctorate, you now know it all. Um. But for God, it's not that way. It is dynamic. It's a way in which he comes and gazes upon the other. Knowledge is not the, uh, not the end of intelligence. A gaze or contemplation is the end of the intelligence. And so, with God, even his truth is act. It's gift. It's uh, encounter. It's like he is life, as we spoke about yesterday. Life lived to its full, to its end. And when we speak about the word, we'll speak about the two aspects. Because St. Augustine, in that treatise, he's going to talk about how you... um, in us, if we're going to look for analogies, you know, a very poor analogy would be anything physical. Anything physical would be a poor analogy of God. So it would be metaphorical, a metaphorical analogy of God. So, for example, the three-leaf clover is a poor example of the Trinity because it's really one or really three, but it's not really three and one. It's three leaves and one plant. And is that way God is? is God? And then it's like doing a direct analogy. It just doesn't st- start to cut it, you know? Because there's actually separate leaves, but God is one. So that doesn't work. It can't be separate. And water too. Water is modalities. It's modes. And tr- the Holy Spirit is not a mode of God. He's not a modality of God. That's actually, there's a whole council on that. He's not a, uh, a modality of God. So the Holy Spirit is not, it's not like there's just one God and when I'm facing you, I'm like this. When I'm facing you, I'm like that. When it, that would be modalities. Like water. 
when it's hot, it's like this. When it's cold, it's like that. And when it's not either, it's like that. You know? That's not the Trinity. It's not modalities. Any physical example is going to fall short because God is not physical in the first place. And physicality is always uh, the lowest form of existence. It's always the lowest form of existence. And the analogy that St. Augustine is going to be able to use, which was part of the genius of the treatise, is to look with inside of us. And with inside of us, we are, there's me, first of all, my autonomy, who I am. There's my mind. And there's my choices or love. And so he's going to speak about the word as being the intelligence, being on the side of the intelligence, rather, and the spirit being on the side of love. But with God, who is infinite, his intelligence is so great that his very idea is the mirror image of himself. His infinite mind has the mirror image of itself, and we call that wisdom or the word. And yet it is him. It's not a separate thing. And that wisdom or word or logos is the mirror image of the Father, of the Father, the infinite intelligence of God, has a fruit that is called, well, its idea or word. And that word was made flesh. And that word loved him back. And so we'll say, Father, the Father has a fruit of his intelligence, which is the Son, or we'll call him Word. And that Word loves the Father back. And so it's the mere image, the mere image of the Father. And the two have a fruit inside of them, too. Like you carry love in your heart. You ever carry love in your heart? I hope so. You ever do that? Okay. And that caring of love in my heart for God is more than just simply caring love in your heart in an intentional fashion. Care, his caring love in his heart that is an infinite love that we speak of as another procession. So there's a procession of the word, the first procession. And the next procession is the procession of love, which is one of the names for the Holy Spirit. You find it, for example, how the wisdom created the world, the personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8. Or you find the spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. How it's the spirit that is evoking the waters. It's as if the love of God is calling forth from the waters, the creation. You find in these processions 
that great movement of the word, of the intelligence rather, and the love. But this is what, while this is what's going on inside of God, I'm going to raise honey now, inside of God, his goodness wants to share There's a Latin expression that Thomas Aquinas will use quite a bit called bonum diffusio sui. Something like that. I might have misspelled diffusio. Goodness diffuses of itself. Shares. When you have a really big heart, you share. (laughs) When you have a really big heart, it radiates. When you're good, truly good, you radiate. And God wants to share his interior love, and hence we have the creation. He didn't have to create us. So these would be the, in, the internal procession, and this would be the external. It's very nice. And we'll come back. I think it's definitely time we'll come back to this right on the next break and we'll tie it in with the resurrection the death and resurrection of Christ and seeing how it accomplishes all of God's plan from all of eternity hail Mary full of grace the Lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb Jesus holy Mary mother of God pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death Amen. If anyone has questions, you can feel free to stick around. I'm sure you do.